0: Ladies and gentlemen, hello, and welcome back to the Primate Cast. I'm your host, Andrew McIntosh, and the release date for today's podcast, number 46 in our series, is Saturday, August the 6th, 2016. On today's podcast, Dr. Anna Nicaris.
1: Slow lorises are heavily traded as pets and they are often desired by young women who are middle-class living in cities who think they're really cute. So if we could target this age group or this consumer class with Mm -hmm. knowledge that in fact, it may look cute, but it's really dangerous. We we hope that this will dissuade people from Mm -hmm. wanting a loris as a pet. And it does seem to have worked. And we have a number of pet owners who firsthand experienced terrible bites from slow lorises Mm -hmm. and want to hand them over to rescue centers. So people who know about it, it can have an impact.
0: Anna Nicaris is professor of anthropology and course leader for the MSC in primate conservation at Oxford Brookes University. She's also the director of the Little Fireface Project, which reflects her efforts to protect one of the lesser known of the primates, the lorises, in their natural habitats. Of course, lorises, especially as you see now on social media all the time, have become a big iconic figure in the pet trade. And so she's got a lot of efforts to kind of combat that, which we get into later on in the interview here. But Dr. Nakaris was in Japan at the behest of the J- Japan Wildlife Conservation Society, where she was uh, where she was invited here um, to talk with them and do a little bit on the pet trade in Japan, uh, which unfortunately is not doing so well, at least if you're a fan of the of loris Conservation. But while she was here, she also had the opportunity to visit Kyoto and Inuyama, where she gave numerous talks at Kyoto City Zoo, for example, the Japan Monkey Center here in Inuyama, and of course at the Primate Research Institute. After which, I was able to sit down with her in the studio and get her thoughts on Loris venom, behavior ecology, and of course, conservation. So here's Dr. Anna Nicaris on those topics. The first thing I, I just wanted to ask was the, the Little Fireface project. Where did the name come from?
1: Right. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't say that, did I, during the talk?
0: I don't think so.
1: I feel like I need to say something as a run-in, but the Little Fireface Project is named after the Sundanese word for slow loris, which is mukageni. And slow lorises have a wonderful facial mask with flame-like tears surrounding their eyes. And so they have names, interesting names in many languages, but mukageni was the one we settled on for the local cultural context
0: in which we work. So what would the, what would be the English translations of some of the other competitors for that? The fire face, I mean, it's pretty hard to beat.
1: They're called the shy shy um, in some places because they cover their face and they curl into a ball. Oh, yeah. They're called the wind monkey because they're silent and they come and go like the wind. Um, oh, there's so many more I have to think now. <laughs> but those are some of the, the really nice ones.
0: Mm. And so when did you start studying the lorises?
1: I started studying the lorises officially in 1994, although I decided to study them a little bit earlier than that. I went to a conference at Duke University in 1993 called Creatures of the Dark, the Nocturnal Mm. Persimians. And I met some loris and bush baby experts who lured me away from my interest in studying lemurs, saying, (laughs) everybody wants to study lemurs now, so you should work on lorises or bush babies,
0: right?
1: I then went off to West Africa to look for bush babies or potos. And I didn't do very well in that environment as a vegetarian. So I thought, where can I study nocturnal? Cute things that no one's ever studied before and be vegetarian. At the same time, it must be India. So then I did my
0: work there for my PhD. Cool. So in the very beginning, I mean, what, what kind of things were you interested in? I guess, I guess at the time and even still now, we, we, we don't know that much uh, about them.
1: When I started my PhD, no one even knew where to find a slender loris or a slow loris. In India, there were ideas where they might be, but it was very dangerous because there's elephants and tigers. Mm-hmm. So the first was just to find one in the wild and see it. But virtually nothing known, was known about their behavior and ecology. So it was a fundamental mm-hmm. baseline study.
0: And then now, I mean, today in the presentation, you're you're talking about uh, venom. Yeah. (laughs) And and I think you mentioned at one point, too, that that was really not something that I guess it was known at the time you started, but it wasn't really hadn't really been developed.
1: Interestingly enough, at this Creatures of the Dark conference was a presentation about slow loris venom, which was then the only published paper from a scientific perspective, trying to understand what it was or what it was used Mm -hmm. for. That was on a really low sample size and it was a very descriptive paper. So after that, there were a few papers looking at the chemical aspects of the slow loris venom, but most primatologists especially said a venomous primate. That's ridiculous. That's not even possible. <laughs> and interestingly enough, I was invited to give a talk to a school in the UK for high school students, mm-hmm. high school age students, 16 to 18 for their science day. And there were these incredible speakers there, including the person who um, invented DNA fingerprinting. Oh, wow. And Sir Alex Jeffries. And then then there was me talking about (laughs) slow lorises. And there was one little slide saying slow lorises are unique, they're venomous. And all of these 16-year-old, very bright students said, venomous? That's amazing. And, And I looked at them as your standard audience of people interested in wildlife. And Mm -hmm. that day I went home and wrote a grant to study slow loris venom, submitted it within a few weeks, and I got that funding to do the work.
0: Yeah, it's cool. But I mean, I guess it is something that really stands out. So in your talk, you you mentioned a few other mammals, now that we know. Maybe you can explain a little bit about the new definition of, of venom and...
1: Yeah. In the past, there's been an anthropocentric view of venom that an animal is only venomous if it can kill a person or Mm -hmm. perhaps kill a particular type of animal like a rabbit or uh, a mouse. But most venoms evolved for a very specific purpose, which might be a feeding purpose or it might be a defensive purpose for something not as large as a rat or not as large as a human, Mm -hmm. particularly. So by avoiding looking at these other types of venoms, which are simply a chemical change that, a protein that produces a chemical change in the recipient that's Mm -hmm. injected through some sort of a wound, be it however small, this uh, potentially gives a pathway to new drug therapies or new uh, insights into pain research or biomedical research with interesting proteins that cause chemical or cellular change that have been ignored before, because they're not what we would have thought of as typically venomous. Mm -hmm.
0: And so what the other animals you had on your on your uh, slide, there were vampire bats.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Vampire bats is one of the animals that falls under the new definition Mm -hmm. of venom. The more classical venomous mammals are selenodons, which are from Haiti and Cuba. They're Mm -hmm. really interesting little insectivore. we also have the short tailed shrew and the Eurasian water shrew. Mm-hmm. The short tailed shrew is the best known. They actually have something called blarina toxin, which is known to cause, oh yeah, have neurotoxic effects. Mm-hmm. And even Shakespeare wrote about how venomous shrews were. <laughs> so the, the term shrewish or Shrew-like old lady actually comes from Eurasian folklore about about the venomous shrew. I see. So we know that uh, we can learn about potential venoms in mammals in this case from language, and that's why it was so interesting that when we started to investigate that in slow lorises, there were many many stories about why they are too they too are venomous.
0: Right, and so I guess with the the shrews you mentioned and the selenodons, it's kind of a pred- predator strategy that they use for the platypus. It's conspecific uh, use. What about the vampire bats I, I vampire? That
1: well, vampire bats use their, they have enlarged salivary glands, and they have very sharp teeth, which they can use then to make a hole in their victim. Mm-hmm. And it's a feeding strategy. Mm-hmm. So unlike the feeding strategy of a shrew, or a selenodon, where they may numb their prey to eat it for later consumption the vampire bat causes a chemical change in the structure of the skin through an ac- anticoagulant effect that then allows them to, to drink blood in their case. So even in this, this particular strategy could have biomedical implications mm-hmm. if we want to look at venoms from that perspective. Mm-hmm. And under this new definition of having an apparatus which produces a hole, having a chemical in the body that causes a change to the organism which you're biting, it falls under that definition mm-hmm. of venom. Mm-hmm.
0: And so in in your work, then, what have you been able to kind of pin down about the the, why slow lorises seem to have evolved a venom as well?
1: We've pinned down the function of slow loris venom, but the why is still a question. Mm -hmm. So it seems to potentially have multiple functions. Certainly, it does different things that um, are useful for slow lorises, but whether one of those was the driving force behind the evolution of loris venom, we don't know. They don't seem to use it to eat prey. Um, there are various reasons you would know if an animal used venom to inject into their prey. We'd expect them to first bite into the notochord cord or into the, the neck mm-hmm. of the animal and to want the animal to succumb to the venom. Whereas in the case of the loris, they typically bite the head of their victim. So there's no need to waste venom on and it's very rapid. It's not that they, they take a while to kill the animal. It's extremely rapid. Right. And this thus seems an unlikely mechanism or a, a need for venom.
0: Just maybe to clarify too, for people who might be listening, biting the head off, the. we're talking about mostly insects.
1: Mostly insects, but, but they, also... they also eat bats. They also okay. eat geckos. They can eat quite a long snake, thin snakes. And there is one report of a eating a tarsier. The tarsier is about 70 grams and the loris that is reported to have eaten the tarsier is about 400 grams. So this is the same proportion between a small cat and a rat, a Mm -hmm. large rat. So it's possible.
0: Okay. Okay. You you showed a video um, in your presentation here with the loris chowing on a giant, what looked like a terrifyingly giant spider, toxic spider as well. Yeah. highly poisonous spider.
1: So we were very interested to know if the lorises um, would reject animals with a higher toxicity potential. So no. we collected a variety of insects from the wild around the rescue center where we were working, including animals that willingly entered the loris cage. And, <laughs> uh, yeah. and we then scored the different behaviors the loris might use. And the single behavior that was very interesting, that's tends to be rare or underreported if it does occur in primates is tongue flicking like Mm. a snake so olfactory exploration of the item with the tongue and lorises did that significantly more if the animal was more toxic they still did it a bit if it wasn't and Mm. even babies did it babies mimicked their mothers and used tongue flicking behaviors but otherwise they were undeterred by these horrific toxic things and even the closest relatives to lorises, the potos and the anguantibos. They're well known for being able to process very toxic prey. Mm -hmm. And it's been a suggestion that the slow metabolism of lorises might be a response to eating toxic foods. Mm -hmm. So being able to eat things that other animals can't. Mm -hmm.
0: I mean, you mentioned also, so one of the main parts of the diet is gums as well from trees. So which might also have a lot of these kind of secondary compounds that are produced in defense of the plant. But
1: So gum is an unusual food for primates. Some primates eat gum, like marmosets or tamarins. Marmosets are capable of extracting gum from trees, whereas tamarins aren't. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bush babies also can't extract, but lorises do. They have specialized teeth, so they bite holes in trees. And they spend up to 60 to even 80%, 90% of their diet eating gums. Mm -hmm. Percent of their feeding time, shall we say. And so we know that some of these gums are very hazardous they can burn human skin they're used for various medicinal purposes in some countries so they're and they're full of phytochemicals that mm. can be difficult to digest and difficult to eat so they're a good example of something alorus eats that's potentially toxic
0: <laughs> okay so maybe not the, the venom maybe not not necessarily directed towards the prey so what were the other ideas that you tested in your work
1: we wanted to see um, as well if lorises used venom as an ectoparasite defense, because we know when we capture wild lorises for radio colouring or when we even see them captured for the illegal trade, they're remarkably parasite free. Mm-hmm. And this was is from t- ticks or fleas or lice. And we thought this was very interesting since these seem to be common problems in primates is to have at least some sort of ectoparasite load. Mm-hmm. And in birds and in capuchins and in other animals, even squirrels, uh, they may rub themselves or anoint themselves with external substances that help them to repel ectoparasites. They may line their nests with elements that help to repel ectoparasites. So potentially this venom rubbed on the loris's body will help to repel ectoparasites. Mm -hmm. And we used a series of ectoparasite type insects again and applied venom to them at various concentrations and found an extremely high death rate mm. that the venom caused death in these ectoparasites.
0: Yeah, so basically everything's dying. And it, but even even so you talked also a little bit about or sorry, the other alternative that you found some support for.
1: Yeah, the final alternative or or a final alternative of the evolution of slow loris venom seems to be conspecific defense. So it, if we want to look at sort of parallel evolution in mammals, platypus do this as well. They use their venom during their mating season. Lorises are interesting in that babies are a different color than the adults. They're they're more starkly colored, mm-hmm. suggesting they may maybe more venomous. Mm-hmm. And we see venom use increase when these young individuals are dispersing. So when they're going to look for their new home where they tend to settle for a very long period of time in a pair with another loris. So even their fur color might be a sign that these younger animals are more venomous. We also know when we capture young animals versus older animals, they're always aggressive. Whereas older animals seem sometimes to know we're not going to hurt them and they Mm. may not be aggressive when we catch them. Whereas the young animals, you really have to be careful. They really want to bite you. My colleague who (laughs) was nearly killed by a slow loris bite was appalled to realize not only had he been bitten by the smallest slow loris species, but he was also bitten by a juvenile slow loris. <laughs> so again, this, this 80 kilogram man that nearly died from a loris bite was from a young, potentially extra venomous loris. And we do have the samples to test that. And we're really interested to see if we find that in the lab, that younger animals are more venomous than older ones, mm-hmm. which is common in venomous animals. So mm-hmm. snakes and certain venomous other taxa have right. younger animals that are more venomous. Wow.
0: So what, what actually happens then for humans? I mean, maybe that's not the necessarily, or the the proper recipient of a loris bite, I guess, for evolutionarily speaking. But what happens when people are bitten or when other lorises are bitten?
1: When other lorises are bitten, the main impact of the venom that we can see is terrible wounds, very often on the head. So when lorises bite each other or when they fight each other, they cover their head with their arms really hard. Mm. And it's very difficult to take the arms apart. But it seems to be that they are trying to protect a very vulnerable part of their body where the skin is thinnest. Mm-hmm. So um, in captivity, these wounds often cause death. They're a number, one of the number one causes of death in captive lorises, especially in rescue centres. Uh, but I'm sure there are other physiological effects that take place. And and one of them is this slow death where the whole internal organ system of Loris's fail after they've been bitten and affected Mm -hmm. by these festering necrotic wounds. In the case of humans, the bite site can also fester and become necrotic. We have evidence of people losing fingers or tips of fingers from Loris bites. It's a very popular story in villages. uh, (laughs) And they'll show you their broken finger or their missing fingertip. The trophies, but um, the main thing that happens is anaphylactic shock. So you have throat constriction, muscle uh, muscle atrophy, or losing feeling and part of the body, tingling sensations, enlarged lips, and uh, yeah, enlarged throats, mm-hmm. and eventually anaphylactic shock essentially leads, leads to suffocation, as your throat constricts and you can't breathe. Mm-hmm. So all of our catching teams always go out with an EpiPen right people who are allergic to peanuts or cats are not allowed to handle or touch slow lorises (laughs) so uh, even if it is an allergic response we know people who've never seen a slow loris before can have this reaction Mm -hmm. we also know people who've worked with lorises for several years randomly one day become sensitized and get that reaction
0: i see so i guess all of this kind of is the perfect transition which is basically what you use in your talk also to kind of connect what you're doing with the venom scientifically to how you can possibly use that um, as an educational tool an inform- informational tool and inject it into kind of conservation activity as well, which I know is one of the most important things for you.
1: Yes. Slow lorises are heavily traded as pets and they are often desired by young women who are middle-class living in cities who think they're really cute. So if we could target this age group or this consumer class Mm -hmm. with knowledge that in fact, it may look cute, but it's really dangerous. We we hope that this will dissuade people from Mm -hmm. wanting a loris as a pet. And it does seem to have worked. And we have a number of pet owners who firsthand experienced terrible bites from slow lorises Mm -hmm. and want to hand them over to rescue centers. So people who know about it, it can have an impact.
0: I, since the rise of social media, I mean, it's probably been a, a, a growing problem as it is for most species, I guess. But you often see the, the YouTube videos or things going by Facebook with lorises, the tickling thing, the, the, the rice ball eating thing in Japan. But I mean, how far back um, does this kind of problem go for lorises? You mentioned in your talk, I mean, some species just suddenly becoming all the rage.
1: Yeah, um there, there was a day in my life that that, that this <laughs> happened. And it was in 2009, when this tickling slow loris became mm. literally went viral. And celebrities were were mm. sending this video left, right and center, even Ricky Gervais, who's a known animal oh. welfare person. Um, said you should the little loris should be holding up a little sign, come to RickyGervais.com. And, <laughs> uh, and, and everybody thought it was really cute. Um, so Stephen Fry famously said that those of you who thought the sloth was cute, now look at the slow loris. <laughs> so this was uh, a hugely problematic. And we saw whenever a celebrity tweeted or especially tweeted one of these videos, spikes on YouTube occurred where people viewed the video even more. We also had celebrities sending people to the video and people trying to attract the celebrities' attention by saying they liked the video. And as these videos traveled around, um, we started to see much more awareness that a slow loris existed. So if I told people I studied lorises in the 90s or even early 2000, most people had no idea what it was. They thought it was a bird. They thought it was a lemming, I don't know why. And, uh, and many primatologists actually said if they were working in, in conservation, oh, we have a rescue center, but only for the important primates. Mm. We don't consider lorises, they're in trade everywhere. There's so many of them, they must be common. Mm. But what they didn't realize and what people still don't realize is one of the reasons lorises can be common in trade is if you are going to say, we call it palm a forest, or so cut down a forest for palm oil, When you cut the the timber trees, monkeys run away, orangutans run away, gibbons run away, lorises cling to the tree for dear life Mm -hmm. and hold on, thinking it will all get better. And (laughs) if they're very quiet, it'll be fine. And you actually have people called loris collectors who go through and pluck them off the trees. So therefore you can get 50 or 60 animals in a single shipment sent. You've de-lorised that whole section of the forest and um, and you get these large numbers in trade. So it's not that they're common, they're just so easy to catch. And then therefore it's easy to fuel this, this pet trade. And, and because of these videos as well, and because of the lack of information before that period, people didn't really have a vision of a, of a loris as a wild animal. Mm-hmm. Their first experience with it was as a cute little guy holding an umbrella or eating a rice bowl right. and seeing that it was a pet, it makes it seem, well, that guy has it as a pet. I can have one as well. And you even see YouTube videos as forums for selling slow lorises and people directing people to sites where they can buy them or where they're willing to illegally ship them Mm. from places like Thailand or Singapore. So it's been a huge disaster for slow lorises, but at the same time, it's the first period in my 23 or 24 years of studying them that it's been perceived they are really in danger and threatened and that these different types of trade are a problem. Mm.
0: And so I guess one of the ways to combat the problem with social media is use social media. So that seems to be a bit, has become kind of a big component uh, of your conservation efforts with Loris as well. And it, when you were talking about it, I just wonder, it's just an offside question. You're kind of monitoring responses to social media about posts about Loris's or, or whatever. And I wonder how, I mean, do you have like a team of you know, thousands of people that, are, how, how is it possible to kind of monitor this and, and respond? It seems like you also have responded um, in case as well so
1: well one one thing that we try to do is give people ways to help so if people come to my facebook page and say they want to help we've made a series of how do you say we've made a series of measured responses mm-hmm. that we have available on our website to inform people why the video is wrong why it's cruel why they shouldn't have lorises as a pet because some people tend to get angry on these social networking forums and respond in an aggressive way that uh, makes the person who uploaded the video not want to listen. So we hope that instead of attacking those uploaders, they'll educate them so they're Mm -hmm. willing to remove that video or that photograph. So that's been one way we we sort of launch our slow loris army. Mm -hmm. And then the number of responses of this committed group of people who really want to see these videos and photographs removed, they're very passionate and very strong. We also, I've had a series of students, probably one or two students for the last few years, specifically doing a master's thesis, looking at various aspects of slow lorises on social media. So mm-hmm. looking at YouTube videos, looking at the advent of lorises on Facebook, looking at slow lorises that are now video game characters okay. and the impact of um, that on, on teenagers. Yeah. And, and this year I had a student for the first time look at Instagram, which is the new... place to upload your photo prop video where you sorry, photo prop photograph where you go to Thailand or Turkey, take a lovely photo with a slow loris and uh, put it up for all your friends to like. And these are even more dangerous in a way because a YouTube video stays up and there can be a discussion forum in the comments that people can see, Mm -hmm. whereas Instagram and Facebook fly by and they're Mm -hmm. there for just a few seconds. So as someone who's liked that image or that photo is likely never to see it again, mm. and they won't see all of the comments that happened that maybe tried to warn them that it was bad. Yeah, so it's kind of a new threat. It's Instagram.
0: Absolutely. I mean, the way people seem to take in information now, that and I mean even Twitter, for example, like just or what's the new Snapchat or I don't know, mm. just the way people communicate these days seems like real information is almost impossible to come by.
1: So we are very lucky that there is this committed group of online community that Mm. really wants to annihilate slow lorises from being on the Internet. And and many of them probably go on every day to make a comment. And we would encourage that and just to be polite. But if you just have five minutes every day to go on to some of these videos and politely ask those people to remove them or take them down or. What some people have done is they've refused to take those images down, but they've at least added a conservation message and a link Mm -hmm. to the description. So at the very least, people who see that that image could go and get more information.
0: Right, 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 right. And just to come back to something you you said just a second ago about having students go through those videos, and I guess you're trying to analyze, I mean, what parts of the videos people are really attracted to. And you mentioned that in your talk that the most overwhelmingly attractive thing about seeing lorises on videos is that they're in the daylight. <laughs> Most ironically, they're nocturnal species.
1: Yeah, so there's a lot of research that for for, for all nocturnal species that they really shouldn't be in daylight. And, and in lorises <laughs> in particular, they have problems with melatonin production. They have problems with stress. They have problems with losing fertility, even when zoos keep them in the wrong light. Mm-hmm. So we can imagine how it must be for them to be as a pet, prodded and pulled out at any hour of the day and woken up from their very deep sleep, because when is asleep, they sleep for 12 hours in the mm-hmm. wild. There's just a few little bits of interruption occasionally. We know this because we have them wearing activity loggers and we could see exactly mm-hmm. any time of the day when they move and they love to sleep in the day. <laughs> and so uh, not only are these guys being kept awake all day, they're put into really unnatural situations um, surrounded with little dogs or cats or children or walked on leads through city streets or driven around in cars. And you see all of these situations that are probably very stressful, because most of those animals will be wild caught. So some people like to use the word domestic when they refer to pet lorises. But I think people forget the difference between domestic and exotic. Mm -hmm. And that domestication is a many thousands of year process, whereas Being taken from the wild, even for one generation, does not domesticate an animal and being tame does not domesticate an animal. So you could have a tame, exotic animal, but it doesn't mean that they are adapted to these very stressful stimuli.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, social media being one thing, but I know there are a bunch of other and we can close out pretty soon, but uh, other ways also that you're trying to connect with people locally, for example, in in the source countries. And so can you just maybe just give us an idea of some of the other kind of conservation activities you have going on, and maybe some ways that anybody listening might be able to help. Or,
1: Yeah, so we, we are working in one village on this long term project to study a population of slow lorises. And we wanted to know about their family life and what they eat and what they do. And we want to use information, especially how lorises help the forest to convince local people to be proud that they live in an area with an endemic species that's really threatened, so that anyone who would come in to want to trade or catch lorises, they would stop those people because they're so proud of their animals. And we're hoping that the work that we're doing in our area could spread out in other parts of Indonesia or spread out in other loris-range countries. We have collaborators in Laos and in India and in Vietnam that are doing similar programs. So, for example, at the moment right now, we are connecting with a project in in Vietnam that also works with with lorises. And we have children in Java and children in Vietnam creating a puppet show with endemic species and sharing all of their experiences with each other on Facebook, which auto-translates their thoughts. Wow. So you can see the love the Vietnamese children have for their endemic species and the love the Javan children have. And then they feel even more proud because they have a different one than those guys have. (laughs) And it's... um, so far been very successful. We have a children's book that's now translated into a few different Asian languages Mm -hmm. that we've been assessing and seeing the change in attitudes towards towards lorises. And I think one thing I really feel strongly about in my project is when you're teaching conservation to children who may have never owned a book before, who aren't even aware that the animal is there. Too many conservation projects immediately start feeding them the threats Mm -hmm. before that child even has a chance to love the animal. Mm -hmm. And I always tell my students, uh, well, Western students who have maybe seen the film Bambi, I ask, Mm -hmm. how upset were you when Bambi's mother was shot? And they go, I never could watch it again. It was so terrible. (laughs) And I said, you feel this way and you have a lot of uh, information that you've been fed about Mm -hmm. animals and animal films. So imagine this is the only book this child ever has and you have monkeys being captured and lemurs being killed mm. i don't think it's the way to do education and mm. i think we've we have the data now to show that even if it's not the only way it's a very good way because these guys really love lorises now
0: yeah it was uh, really cool um when you gave the a little anecdote about the teeth the loris teeth uh, in your presentation today
1: yeah, so we worked with a really incredible illustrator from singapore um who drew images for our children's book and I worked with her on every image to make sure every finger and every flower was correct and she did such a beautiful job and one of the things we did was have loris teeth poking out throughout the book where a loris looked like she was smiling or she was using her teeth for an ecological function and so instead of telling children a major threat to slow lorises is, is traders cut out their teeth so that you, you can't have their venomous bite mm-hmm. and This is really brutal and terrible. And it's a really shocking, sad image for a child. Instead, we say, lorises have these really cool teeth and they use them for grooming, they use them for feeding, they use (laughs) them for venom, isn't that amazing? We saw a statistically significant um, increase in when children drew pictures, they drew lorises with teeth. Or when they wrote essays about lorises, they discussed the aspects of their teeth or their venom. And that was really exciting without any sort of prompting about the bad part, just the good part that children go, whoa, I'm drawing a loris. So just like I draw a ring-tailed lemur with a stripy tail, I draw a slow loris with teeth. (laughs) And we do hope if they ever become hunters and they ever were there with those toenail clippers in their hand, they wouldn't cut out the loris's teeth.
0: Right, well, I I definitely hope it has that effect. And and thanks (laughs) uh, for joining us here on the Primate Cast and definitely best of luck in the future. And And look forward to see more.
1: Yeah, thank you very much for inviting me. No, it was fun. You have been listening to the Primate Cast a podcast series dedicated to the study and conservation of primates around the world. Brought to you by the Center for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology of the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. Visit us online at www.cicasp.pri.kyoto-u.ac.jp forward news forward podcasts and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash The Primate Cast and on Twitter at The Primate Cast.